Good morning. Ooh, how's everyone doing this morning? Wow, we're very chatty. It's all right, I'll get warmed up. Give me a second. They've got me wired here. Is it just, is it this? Okay. All right. How's everyone doing? You doing all right? Happy to be in church? It has been a while since I was here, and we could say some proverbial water under the bridge, but what a cherishing experience to be standing up here this morning and addressing you all, a few of which I feel like I've met before, which is a unique experience in and of itself. And my delight truly here this morning is to open up the Word of God, exposit the text, apply it to our life, and see how God would speak to us in and through His inerrant, inspired Word. That is what I'm here to do. But in all that and saying all that, it really is a rich experience for me, having the privilege to come back. Two years ago, I was here uh, early 2020, just before COVID hit. In fact, I flew home through China. So that was a unique experience at the end of February in 2020. And then getting to the, uh, the Houston International Airport and trying to convince them to let me back in. I don't have the, the leprosy that was uh, allegedly spreading across the world. And I was here in February 2020 uh, to something of a diminished crowd to ordain, of course, uh, Vic and Tom and uh, deeply reserved fears for how this would turn out. Tom? Deeply held. And over the last about two years, a little more than two years, I've been closely following. Tom calls me about once every maybe two or three weeks to ask me questions and uh, challenge and question my theology and my character and run me through the ringer. Uh, and Tom and I have been talking. I've been watching Tom preach been watching all the Q&As and just following what God has been doing in his life. And I have been really surprised that God has blessed him. I think of the best way to backhand compliment Tom while I stand here. Uh, but you will love Tom. And so hopefully while I'm here this time, I can grow and learn to love him too. <laughs> Uh, we pray and hope for that. I have not lost my Australian snark. It is very much resident in me. I tell my, my New Yorkers when I'm pastoring up there, I say, you need to understand that sarcasm is the Australian love language. That's what it is. That's, that's how we talk. And if I am just tearing you down, it's inwardly I'm building you up. It is love. It's, it's affection. And I've been successful at convincing them that that is true. So... I still have a job in upstate New York. If you want to look us up, Journey Christian Church, Rochester, you can find our social platforms and YouTube channel, and uh, you might be blessed through that. But what we are here to do is to open up the Word of God and see what God would speak to us. So I want to invite you, as Tom has just done, to the book of Mark, a small passage that we're going to be studying together this morning, but one which doesn't lack any impotence, uh, any potent potency, I should say, one which packs a... Punch. Our text is Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. One more side tidbit, if you'll humor me for a moment this morning. Tom said I had two hours, so I'm assuming that that's run for the, uh, that's the, that's the norm. As we're driving in this morning to church, my delightful little niece said to me, Uncle Craig, when you preach, you sound angry. And I said, what, what is that? What do you mean? What does that mean? 
She said, well, I don't know what it is, but you're just shouting and you're yelling and you're trying to communicate to her that I, I get really excited when I get to open up the Word of God. And so just so you know, that's kind of playing through my head all morning now. Don't come across to my little niece that I'm angry, but I will not in any way mitigate the excitement, especially for a passage such as the one that we're going to study together in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. As Jesus taught in the temple, our text reads, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, as I've been following along, like many of you have, over Tom's uh, expert exposition of the last few chapters of the book of Mark, we have seen that Jesus has brilliantly been swatting away all of these objections and antagonisms and attacks of the the malcontents, the, the detractors of his ministry. He's combated the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, any Johnny-come-lately, whoever they are, have had a crack at Jesus. And in every single instance, he has, he has acquitted himself with a marvelous sense of, of decorum and, and patience, but brilliant savagery every single time. And you've learned that over the last few weeks. But in this instance this morning that we're taking a look at, this very small instance, it is one of those moments where Jesus turns the tables on his detractors to call them to account and to question them. This is the nature of the culture of the land and the people of Israel at the time, that they, they had this long-awaited expectation that Messiah was going to come for hundreds of years. All the way back until the earliest books of the Pentateuch, there was prophecies that the Lord shall one day raise up a prophet, just like Moses. Shiloh shall come to his people. These prophecies that, that just adorn the entire New Testament, that, that there will come a time when Yahweh himself shall suddenly come to his temple. All of those prophecies have not only now been manifest in full, but fulfilled entirely in the advent of Jesus Christ. Have you ever stopped for a moment and just wrestled with this concept that these very religious, devout, almost fundamentalist type devotees to Judaism had all of this literature and all of this anticipation and expectation, and when God finally turned up, it went terribly pear-shaped. A part of this is wrestling with the concept of what was it that this anticipation that was building, what, what was that expectation? What were they looking for? Expectations are great. Anticipation can seize in an experience as the build-up becomes tangible. You've felt that different times of your life, maybe leading up to a, the birth of a child or leading up to, to a wedding day or some major life event that you'd been working hard toward, your, your university graduation. The, the anticipation can seize in it somewhat. And yet the scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And here's how this tension begins to build in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Something genuine was being anticipated by the people in the land of Israel at the time. Have you ever wondered, as I asked a moment ago, how Israel went from sustaining such a deep 
all-pervading, long-held expectation of the arrival of Messiah and how diabolically awful it all went when he came. Very few people were happy. The only people that seemed happy were people that could, that could get from Jesus some kind of immediate remedy to a need, a healing, an exorcism, free fish sandwiches on the hillside of Bethany. Whatever it might be, there was, this, there was this satisfaction that lingered for a very short while and then was gone and people began to be disgruntled again. You remember that instance recorded in John 6, these, these crowds, these throngs of thousands of people standing and, and sitting and, and waiting, and Jesus miraculously feeds them. You remember their response in John 6? They went and found arms, swords, and spears, and weapons, and they said, we're now going to make this man king. It's in a staggering moment. That at that point in Jesus' ministry, he had the opportunity to endorse a militia that was ready to overthrow Herod, to take on the Romans, to ascend him to a throne of authority. And of course, Jesus secreted himself away and had nothing to do with that foolish, militant form. What was it that provoked them to this kind of action? It wasn't his true identity. It wasn't his sermons. In fact, the, the sermon recorded in John 6 repulsed the majority of those people and they left of their own accord. It was just simply the immediate remedy to a superficial need. We're hungry, we want lunch. Jesus, what can you do? And each time that Jesus provides some, some remedy to some superficial need, I don't mean to downgrade sickness or demon possession or, or even starvation. Don't mishear me this morning. It's not that those things aren't really a big deal. It's that the thing that Jesus actually came to confer is infinitely greater. Actual salvation. Actual reconciliation back to God. Actual forgiveness of real sin. The removal of real culpability. The expiation of guilt. The propitiation of God. But they wanted fish sandwiches. They, they wanted this Jesus that could be domesticated. That could be conformed into some celestial butler where you just dangle a bell and he comes running. And if you're hungry, it's a meal. If you've got a headache, it's, it's medicine. If you're struggling with a demon, it's exorcism. The Messiah has come. And the reality is the people of Israel at the time had created a profile of the Messiah. They expected, they developed an image of the Messiah that they wanted, that they supposed that they needed. And in Jesus, all of their expectations are devastatingly dashed. Again, it's not that Jesus didn't provide those things that they wanted when they wanted them. Jesus spent entire days and nights healing throngs of people and, and, and giving deliverance and, and, and giving help to people that needed it. He was a merciful, a compassionate Savior. But the very thing that Jesus had been sent from heaven to offer, they did not want a bar of it. It's so good to be in Australia. I can't use that line in America. They didn't want a bar of it. Huh? A bar of what? All my Australian idioms are now coming back. I'm, I'm free. I'm free here in such a way that I'm not in those there United States of America. Some of them are going to be listening to this and they're going to ask me when I get back, were you mocking us? Yes. <laughs> Unquestionably so. It's a, it's a love language, remember? It's my expression of love. So here's the challenge. When Jesus arrives at this moment, 
He's in the temple. As we said, the, the context and the setting are very obvious to us. They have been coming to him time and again. They've, it's, almost, it's almost like they've been queuing up for hours and days to, to level their accusation of Jesus, to, to, to trap him, to undermine him. And each time he has acquitted himself without any, without any accusation of actual guilt. And yet, this is Jesus' turn to ask them a question. I wonder, for many people here this morning, as we take a look at the question he asked, I wonder if that's an obvious question you thought Jesus would ask. If he had a chance to call into question all of his attackers and detractors, is that the question you thought he would ask them? Is that the accusation you thought he would level? Is that, in fact, what you supposed would be the angle that he would take? It's curious indeed. In fact, let's go back and just review this text, these few very short verses. Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the throng heard him gladly. What a curious thing, what a, what a curious angle, what a curious position for Jesus to take. What is, he, what is he getting at? What is he aiming for? Now, here is the challenge of what happens when the people in Israel in the times of Christ had developed an artificial profile of who Messiah will be when he comes, and when God actually sends Messiah, he doesn't conform to that profile, and you are left disgusted, disgruntled, and offended I want to tell you something this morning that's not just endemic to the Israelites of Jesus' day. That is part and parcel with all forms and traditions of Christianity the world over. And history is replete with examples of people who want to conform Jesus to their ideal and won't encounter him in the text as he reveals himself. Part of the challenge is, at the times of Christ is Israel looks very different than it did in the times of David. Now, they thought they were standing by, awaiting, anticipating David's son. And when David's son gets here, then he's going to vanquish our tyrants. He's going to overthrow the, the Roman Empire. He's going he's to dethrone Herod. He's going to abolish tax. He's going to liberate our people. That was the assumption. Israel was a very different, very, very different place. And here's the question. Here is the trap that we all find ourselves at times in our, in our own Christian walks, succumbing to this temptation to develop a profile of Jesus that is not exactly who he's revealed himself in the text, to, to then grow in our offensiveness, our, to, to, our offendedness, I should say, our, our, our sense of being robbed. Jesus has let us down, and this is the state of Israel at the time. If you had asked them, if you asked Israel, let's, let's get to the, the root, the thrust of this question that Jesus asked. If you were able to take a census or a poll of the entire nation of Israel at the time of Jesus and ask them, who do you want to come and rule Israel? Do you want David's son or, second option, David's Lord. You know what they'd say? Now, I suppose you think you know what they would say. But let me tell you what they would say. 
They would say neither David's son nor David's Lord. They would want David himself. This was, the, this was the heart cry of every Israelite at the time of Christ, that if we could just, if we could just reanimate David, then all of our problems would vanish. But because we can't have David back, because he was a, a mere mortal who died and went to his reward, we will at least, we will at least be satisfied if we can have David's son. He, he will at least be a cheap imitation of the original. It's hard to exaggerate the staggering success of someone like King David. We all know the stories of, of David and Goliath and these kinds of narratives that we teach children in, in Sunday school, but the truth is if we were to really profile David this morning, we would all be staggered at how powerful, how glorious, how pious, how God-loving, how people-loving this man was. He extended the borders of Israel well beyond anything that Israel had ever experienced before. He vanquished the Canaanites. He enslaved the Philistines. He developed Israel's economy to such a staggeringly wealthy place that they outstripped all of the other nations around them in their wealth and fortune. More than that, it was David that conquered the Jebusites. Now, some of you know what that means. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but Jebus, the place of the Jebusites, it's a weird name, I know, was in fact the ancient city of, you know it, Jerusalem. Now this city was so fortified, no one could get in, no one could conquer it, no army could, could take it down. And David finds this secret route in the, in the plumbing and the waterway of the city, and he sends his assassins in, and in a very short space of time, he conquers it and elevates Jerusalem as the capital of the world of Israel. Now these people knew all about the exploits of David. They grew up. As kids' stories, on, on, on their knees of their mother and, and their grandmother, hearing stories. They're being spoon-fed this, this story of the great King David. What he was able to do. How God used him. How amazingly beneficial he was as a king. And so messianic expectation soon evolved into Davidic expectation. What does Israel need? Their response would have been, we need David back. What's the, what's, what's, the, what's the very thing that if Israel could, could just achieve this, they, they would have all of that glory again, all of that political clout and fame, all of that dominion and authority and, and wealth. What do they need? They need David. That was the conviction that they developed. And they began to read this into the Old Testament prophecies. It is very obvious in the Scripture that the Messiah who is to come will be a descendant of the Davidic line. Because the prophecy of the Old Testament is that it will be of the lineage of David that Israel's greatest king will come. And so they begin to take these prophecies and, and reinterpret them in a, in a new light. It's David's son. In other words, what they're saying is, what makes Messiah so glorious and grandiose and helpful is he's David's son. And when Jesus arrives, not denying that he's of Davidic lineage, he certainly was of Davidic lineage, but suggesting that he's there to do far more than David ever could, to conquer a far worse enemy than David ever could. In fact, more than all of that, what the Messiah has brought to Israel is not David or David's son, but the very Lord that David relied on for strength and grace. So Jesus poses the question, 
he poses this question to his detractors. Why do the scribes say that this is David's son? When David, in fact, spoke through the Holy Spirit, and he understood that this is David's Lord. Now, fast forward. Remember I said a moment ago that the Israel in David's time was a far cry from the Israel of Jesus' time. And the people of Israel at the time felt this very acutely. They, they felt this deeply. Let me give you some, some idea of the Israel that Jesus came to rather than the Israel that David built. Now Israel at the time of Christ was only known as the Palestinian backwaters of the Roman Empire. They were an irrelevant afterthought. This is the truth. I hope I'm not offending anybody, but in the times of Jesus, this is how they were perceived by the rest of the world. In fact, it was known in those days, in Jesus' day, that if you wanted to punish a ruler or a king or a political player, if you wanted to punish them, you sent them to rule among those Palestinians. That's how you dismiss them. That's how Caesars in the day eradicated the threat of compete competitors to the throne is they sent them to Palestine. That's how Palestine, Israel, is understood. They had no real economy of their own. They paid heavy taxes too and were entirely dependent on the Roman coin. They were thought of as a peasant people clinging to dry fundamentalism but with memories, vivid memories of a distant past. Since David's day, Israel had been kicked like a football from one empire to the next. No empire was actually ambitious to rule them, but they were an essential part of the East-West connection. And they were known to be a hive of revolutionary sentiment and activity. So, from Assyria, to Babylon, to Persia, to Greece, and now to Rome... In a very little slithers of time, throughout that almost a millennia of history, they experienced some independence, but it was quickly gone and soon over. And Israel at the time were pining for their warrior king who could overthrow Rome, abolish tax, dethrone Herod, and restore the nation's glory. And Jesus is not about to be used as a tool for their ambition. So this is what the people want. We just read in Mark 12, 35, how can the scribes say, Jesus asked, that the Christ is the son of David? The Jews want the man that will get them their agenda. This is what they want. They want someone who will forward their purposes, who will make them all greater and wealthier and more glorious, just like they knew their ancestors had experienced. If David is so well-respected, Here's the question that Jesus posed. Now this question may be a little subtle in the way Jesus questioned his attractors, but here is what David is saying. If you, Jesus, sorry, here's what Jesus is saying. If you love David so much, why aren't you listening to what he said? Why aren't you listening? Because David didn't say Messiah is going to come and what makes him so great and glorious is he's going to be of my lineage. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Jesus wants to question them. If you hold David so highly, if you think David is so great, why aren't you paying any attention to what David said in the Holy Spirit? Here is the truth of the gospel. When God and heaven sent Christ to be the Savior 
of sin-sunken souls, such as all of us are, he came to do something far greater than overthrow the tyranny of Rome or undermine the paying of a tax or liberating people from Herodian autocracy. He came to vanquish a far greater enemy, a far more deadlier threat. Rather than David coming to liberate Israel, what if David's God came instead? Yahweh has come to his people. And what does John chapter 1 tell us? He came unto his own, and they received him not. This is the most staggering indictment against Israel that you could ever imagine would be possible. That they had labored in great piety and devotion to have every hour, minute, second of their life, every activity, thought, and attitude of their heart regulated by love for and worship of Yahweh. And then Yahweh turned up in human form and they rejected him. They wanted him nailed to a cross. They wanted him silenced, undermined, and eradicated. This is the staggering indictment against Israel. He came to his own, and his own received him not. So here is the situation, as we've already surveyed this situation. Jesus successfully defends himself and his claim to Messiah from all comers. They are They've tried from every angle, every strategy, every argument that they know to weaponize against Jesus. He masterfully swats them away like dismissing flies. And now his claim to be Messiah and Lord remains intact. And even if they could all be convinced that he is Messiah, here is the question. Do they know who Messiah actually is? Do they even know who Messiah is? They're having a hard enough time being convinced that Jesus is David's son. They're not ready to even reckon or digest the reality that he is David's God. Sitting before them. Offering them his grace and forgiveness. They're not ready to even grapple with the reality that sitting before them is the very creator of the universe. The one who sustains the very material world with the word of his power. We just read this in the the Chalcedonian Creed. We just read this. That Jesus is truly human in every sense of the word, but without sin. And truly God in every sense of that word. He is God incarnate. That means in our flesh, in our form. And you see this playing out in Jesus' ministry. What about that humorous occasion where Jesus' Sabbath theology is questioned. Now, this happened more than once, so you're not immediately sure what reference I'm talking about. But Jesus' comical and yet lethally threatening retort was, remember what he said to them? My father is working until now, and I am working. At that, his detractors were ready to stone him to death because they understood the ramification of what he was saying. Now, much of... Modern Christianity has no understanding of what Jesus was actually saying. Because the Jewish, the Jewish people had a theology that Father God, who spoke the material world into existence, he created everything in six 24-hour days, and on the seventh, he rested from his creative work. This is what they understood. And this is, this is all very true and biblical. 
They understood that the Father, having rested from his creation work, did not rest from his sustaining work. That the entire fabric of the material world would disintegrate into empty nothingness if God wasn't sustaining it by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks to this. Many texts actually verify and communicate this to us. Now rewind and remember that Jesus was being accused of not observing Sabbath as he was required. And he says to them, would you like me to take a Sabbath? Because if I stop working, just like my father is working, the entire material world will be emptied of its existence. He is stating to those detractors who are trying to accuse him of not resting well enough on the Sabbath because he would, he would heal people, he would help people, he would liberate people, he would preach his message. And he said to them, in his own way, I am Yahweh God. I am the Almighty. It is my word right now that is holding together, knitting the very fabric of your being. If you like, I can stop working. I can Sabbath. If that's what you need, but it'll be you who ceases to exist. My father is working until now, and, and I am working. There is this constant friction in the life of Jesus where he is communicating his eternality, his divinity, his glory, equal with God the Father, and they are utterly blind and deaf and insensitive to the reality of who he is. So Psalm 110, if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to spend the closing moments of our talk here this morning on Psalm 110. Psalm of David, who Jesus ratifies, he he writes this, he communicates this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He would drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is David singing this wonderful, beautiful, impactful psalm. The Lord said to my Lord. The distinction is clearer in the Hebrew language, but usually in your English Bible, the distinction will be shown by the first Lord will be capitalized and the second Lord will be in regular script. To demonstrate that in the Hebrew, there's actually two very different titles or, or, or nouns given to this person, this being. There is the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, or the actual, the actual declension or the, the, the form of the word here is Adon. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. The reality is here in even the earliest of Psalms, a millennia before the advent of Christ, the multi-personal nature 
of the being of God is being explicitly revealed. That God is one eternal being in three distinct co-equal persons as the historic Christian creeds have verified and convinced us to understand the scriptures in light of this reality. The psalm begins to bring this truth to bear upon our own hearts and lives and Jesus speaks of this. That the first Lord speaks of the Father. The second Lord is speaking of the, the Son, both eternally and truly God. And David has a reverence and a fear and a worship for both. Here's what we read in the psalm. That this Lord, whom the Father will make an all-conquering force, He will rule the nations. He will vanquish enemies. He will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is controversial. Indeed, I've done a whole sermon series in the book of Hebrews. I've in fact taught in the past that Melchizedek, who appears in the book of Genesis, is actually a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God. I'll let you chew on that for a while and, and go and read some blogs later and find out how you think I'm, I might be wrong. Just, just think on that for a while. He appears to Abraham. He is a priest forever, without mother or father, without genealogy, and without end of days. What do you get when you get an eternal priest who comes from no human parents, has no descendants or offspring, and has no termination of life? You are the very son of God. And Melchizedek has now come in this human form of Jesus. And he reigns as a priest forever. The anointing he has is an eternal priestly anointing. And we read... That the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment over the nations. Therefore he shall lift up his head once he's vanquished his enemies. We see these, even in this psalm, we see the three officers of Christ begin to manifest themselves implicitly. That, that the Messiah who comes will, will be a prophet. He will speak the very words of God. He, he, he's a priest. He has the priestly anointing like, like Melchizedek has. But he's ultimately a king. He is a king of his people. And in the day of his power, his subjects will be made willing. Let, let's get to the thrust of this entire point. How does this apply to us? How does this... How does this actually affect our lives? What does all of this debacle between Jesus and his detractors, what does this have to do with us? As I said earlier on, as we close out here this morning, this is the perpetual, the perpetual challenge of every person who claims to be a worshiper of God. This is the constant challenge of our own hearts, which John Calvin aptly said, the human heart is a master factory for idols. That's what we do. We, we manufacture idols and we, and we repent and we fight against it and we resist the temptation, but that's the nature of the fallen human heart. Now, this is why this is so essential for all of us, Im impactful for every one of us. The Jesus who is revealed on the pages of Scripture in places like Psalm 110 in places like the book of Mark, in fact, from Genesis to Revelation, every passage of Scripture is explicitly or implicitly revealing Christ. And the very Jesus that the Bible reveals is the only Jesus that the gospel offers. Let me state it again. I know it didn't sound super profound when I said it the first time, so let me restate it. This time with some, with some overly hallowed tones and some slower speech and give you a sense of the enormity of this. 
The Jesus that's revealed in the Bible is the only Jesus that the gospel has to offer. Now, why, why would that even be controversial? That sounds like the kind of thing that everyone that claims to be Christian could sign their name to, right? That, that makes perfect sense. But because every one of us fights constant, a constant battle and temptation to, to conform Jesus into an image of what we think that we prefer. The kind of Jesus that we want to worship, that, that we are, we are uh, uh, we're drawn to. The kind of Jesus that we want to love. Now part of that is healthy, but a big part of that is deeply sinful. Because the constant temptation of our heart is to conform Jesus. You're going to struggle to believe this, but trust me, it's true. You're going to be tempted to conform Jesus after your image. A Jesus that looks like you that talks like you, a Jesus that's always on your side, a Jesus that always backs you, a Jesus that's always in your corner. You see, this is the trap of the Israelites in Jesus' day. They thought they knew what Messiah was going to be, when he came, what he would do, and when God turned up, he looked nothing like what they were expecting. And yet he was the very God that was the subject of all of their religious faith, the object of all of their worship, the one that they were sacrificing to night and day, the one that they were praying and singing psalms to in, in the temple, the one that every little, little boy and girl in synagogue school learned about and read the stories. When Yahweh fronted Israel, they crucified him. They put him to death. They were unbelieving. They wanted their sin. They wanted a Jesus or a Messiah or a, a prophet from God that could be led around on a leash, summoned like a butler to wait on them. But here is the fact the Scripture reveals without apology and without hesitation that the Jesus of the Gospel, the Jesus of the Bible, is the ever-present, all-triumphant, all-compassion Savior who came to the earth on His terms. And many people today are tempted to come to Jesus with our agenda. Maybe even some people here this morning. You, you've been living your Christian life and there's been constant frustration for you because God just won't do or be who you really thought he would be and do what you thought he should do. We, we want a God that gets us out of our trouble, that, leads us, that, that never leads us into troubling times or temptations or trials. But Jesus loves us far too much to be tolerant of that. How many professed Christians, I'll speak for myself, that I've witnessed over the 20 plus years of vocational ministry that I've served local Christian churches have left their faith behind because they were looking for a Jesus other than the one that the gospel offers. Give me a trouble-free life. Give me security, freedom, and perpetual blessing. Give me, give me wealth and prosperity and health and, and happiness. Give me these things. Give me King David, but don't give me David's king. And here is the rub. Heaven has sent Jesus. And if you, with an eye of faith, can look at the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus in the gospel, if you can see him for who he is and embrace him for who he's revealed to be, that's saving faith. That's faith that comes to Jesus on his terms. It's not negotiating 
It's not trying to get Jesus to the table to, to talk on, on mutual terms and compromises. I will follow you, Jesus. I will tithe to church. I will turn up weekly if you on your behalf can do X, Y, and Z. That's never going to be the Jesus of the gospel. That's never going to be the Jesus of scripture. Jesus had countless occasions in his earthly ministry to allow himself to be conformed to the image of those that were lauding him with praise, celebrating his greatness, taking up swords to fight in his militia, and every time he dismissed the crowd by revealing his true nature. This is the Jesus of Scripture. Let me try and see if I can summarize this in the smallest possible, shortest possible way. Jesus of Scripture saves, not from Rome, but from hell. Jesus of Scripture atones for. Not, he's, not, he's not atoning for the mistakes in your life and the, and the haphazard coincidences that you stumble into. He's saving us from our sin. If you know yourself a sinner then Jesus is a savior that can save you. But if you're sitting here this morning knowing yourself to be just really great and, and God, would be, God would be really blessed to have me on his team so he should save me because what I have to offer him, that's not saving faith. This is the Jesus of scripture. He does come to vanquish a foe, but the foe is Satan, sin, and death. The scripture is very clear. All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Jesus came. To save us from our sins. Not to be conformed to our butler, our servant, our waiter. If we can just for a moment get it in our mind that Jesus is the best thing that heaven could have ever sent and embrace him for who he is, we will never be guilty of stumbling into the trap of the detractors in the temple that day. Would you bow your head and close your eyes as we pray God's blessing upon this study in his word this morning. Father God, thank you for this privilege today to be with these worshipping worshiping believers who love you, who seek to live their lives according to your standard and your word, who seek to do all that they do, all that they say, all that they are to your glory, Lord God. They're not here this morning because they're trying to conform you to, to what they want. They've come on your terms to be your servants. Father, I love, the, I love the promise of Psalm 110. That the people shall be willing in the day of his power. And this, Lord God, is truly the, the clearest manifestation of the power that you have brought in and through your gospel. In and through your word. In and through Jesus Christ himself. That to all who just receive Jesus, who just believe on his name for who he is, not what they can get. We thank you, Lord God, that the promise is that they shall be called sons and daughters of the Most High. They shall be saved and forgiven and granted the grace for eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel. None of us are good enough. None of us are worthy enough. None of us have ever done enough. But we come as beggars seeking the bread of eternal life. And we know, Lord God, that you gladly dispense it freely and liberally to all who simply receive Christ by faith. Thank you for this wonderful time that I've at least had in your word this morning, Lord God. I pray it's a blessing to us all. And most importantly, that it would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.